uh, to jump into 1 Samuel chapter 7 tonight. We actually come to the end of a section in this book uh, that is important to note. I want to catch us up on the first six chapters. After we finish chapter 7 tonight, uh, we will be moving into Israel dis- um, wanting a king in the process of establishing a monarchy through the nation of Israel. So tonight we're going to be talking in chapter 7 about gospel reflection, and I'll explain that in just a second, but uh, chapters 1 through 6, when we think of major themes, there's a parallel in it that, that I want to trace all the way back, uh, just for Bible study, study's sake, uh, that you can see here. So the theme in the first six chapters is uh, the nation of Israel before the monarchy, but there's two important things here, and one of them is Eli, the priest, his sons, remember they were wicked men, and, and so the first one is to see them and what happened through the nation of Israel, or to the nation of Israel, through the wickedness of Eli's sons. So through them, or through the sons, condemnation came to all of Israel. Okay? The second thing is that there's a flip side to it. Samuel, he's born, and he's a son of Hannah, and then given as uh, sort of a son to Eli. And he serves, but he is a different kind of son, and he brings uh, good news to the people of Israel. That's what tonight is all about, is the good news of Samuel, in this case, coming to Israel and being a spiritual leader. The parallel is in Romans chapter 5, and 1 Corinthians 15 also talks about it. The Apostle Paul says that there is uh, the original Adam, and then there is what he calls the last Adam, being Jesus. So Adam, back in the garden, Adam and Eve, Adam was a, um, a, a man created in the image of God, but through his sin, through him and Eve, their sin, humanity was forever changed. And God's wrath rested on all of humanity. You and I, the brokenness we have in our lives today can be traced all the way back to that original sin. It changed things when they uh, became sinners. And so through that, everyone recognized we need something. We need something. Through the law and the rest of the Old Testament, we need a Savior. And then the last Adam, Paul says, is Jesus. One who comes, but he does not fall into sin like the first Adam. He is better than the first Adam. The first Adam was just a man. The second one is both man and God. It's Jesus. And through him, we have life. So if through Adam, the original Adam in the Garden of Eden, if we have death through him, if we have the wrath of God on us through him, how much more are we going to have life and grace through Jesus Christ? And so we see the parallel that Eli's sons here in the first six chapters, they're the ones bringing wrath on everybody, but Samuel, he's bringing good news. And that's what the gospel means, is good news. Of course, we think of it as the good news of Jesus Christ, and this being 1,100 years prior to Jesus coming to earth reflects this good news in several ways. So the theme for tonight is gospel reflection. Gospel in that the good news of Samuel as a spiritual leader for uh, the Israelites shows, and it's outlined through chapter 7, several of the implications of this good news. So we're going to talk about everything from uh, the call to follow the Lord, to uh, intercessory prayer, um, to sacrificing and fighting for one another, things that we see we have in Christ. And so uh, that's the gospel part. The reflection part is this, that you and I are always reflecting something. And the more we keep our eyes focused on Christ, the more we're growing in him, we're going to see ourselves becoming more like him. I remember uh, when Silas was just a little, little tiny guy, and we were starting to give him baths and go through the whole process, little towel, hold him up in front of the mirror and show him uh, what he looked like with his little towel wrapped around him. And the only thing showing is his little face, and, and we'd show his reflection. And at first, he didn't have a clue what it looked like. And then as the months passed by, uh, he started to see it, and he didn't like it because he started to realize, oh, that's me, and it made him feel kind of weird, and he didn't know what to do with his own reflection. But now that he's past two years old, like, he looks forward to it, and he knows what he's going to see, and he gets excited about it, and he smiles, and he puts a big cheesy smile on his face, and, and he just loves to look at himself in the mirror. For you and I as believers, when we fix our eyes on Christ, when we abide in him, when we live in him, when we walk with him, all this imagery, we find ourselves changed. At first, we don't know what to do about it. 
because we're looking more like him now than, than ever before and less like our old life. And we know it's good, but it's kind of weird. Uh, but then we grow into it and we see God working through us as he calls us to make disciples. And so I want two things to happen tonight. I want us to see how Jesus, number one, is the better Samuel. He's the better Samuel. His good news is better than the good news of Samuel. But number two, the parts of the gospel that we see in Samuel uh, is something that you and I can reflect as we reflect Christ, as we go and make disciples. So this is going to be both uh, theological and practical. So I want you to ask yourself as we walk through, ask yourself, what am I reflecting? And when I pour into people, when I minister to people, when I'm around people, what am I reflecting? Because what you're reflecting is generally what you're seeing, and what you're seeing is what you're experiencing. And so when you minister to people, what are you reflecting? Is it the Jesus of the Bible, or is it something else? might help us to uh, get some good perspective tonight. All right, let's jump on in. 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 3, it says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, so we're talking hundreds of thousands of people, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. All right, let's park there a little bit. The very first thing that we see is the call to follow the Lord, the call to follow Jesus. So here's the important thing that we need to know right off the bat. We ended last week um, uh, after talking through chapter 6 where the ark, they received the covenant of God, the presence of God went from the Philistines back to the Israelites and they received him and they were pumped and they were excited, but then they didn't take repentance serious. They didn't take God's holiness serious and it said at least 70 of these men died because they peeked inside the ark, they saw God and God just killed them. And then they mourned. And between verses 2 and 3, so where we pick up tonight, 20 years pass. 20 years. And it just says that all of Israel lamented, meaning they mourned. So they realized, like, that God came back. We didn't quite understand grace. We don't know why he came back. We were excited, but now we're just sad because some of our guys died, and, and we don't know what to do. After 20 years of sitting in that mess, then a spiritual leader arises. And Samuel says, Let's do this. It's time to quit playing games. It's time to grow up. It's time to get it together. We're going to follow the Lord with all our heart or, or, or nothing else. And that's what's going to happen. Do you want to do this? And they're like, okay, let's do it. So he calls them to something higher. He, he calls them to go from, hey, you can sit around and cry about what's happening in your life and, and the mess that you're in, or you can follow Jesus. This is going to be hard. It's going to be risky. It's going to be awesome. It's going to take work and action, uh, but you're going to rest when you find the goodness of the Lord. He calls them to something so much bigger than themselves. You've got to wonder if they even know they're, what they're really getting into. And, and for Samuel... It's not like he has tons of years of reputation as the spiritual leader to back up. Like He's like, you know what? This is going to be risky for me to call you guys out and to say, let's stop playing games. If we're going to follow God with all our heart, put away the idols and follow him. If you got like 50, 60 years of reputation, credibility built up of leading them as a spiritual leader, yeah, probably not much of a risk. But he's still brand new in the ministry. Like he's a young pup. You got all the elders, you got everyone saying, oh man, take him serious. It's a huge risk, a huge risk. So what is the call that he calls them to? Well, we see similar calls throughout scripture. In Genesis 35, you see Jacob gathering the Israelites together, and he tells them essentially the same thing as Samuel. You see in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua gathering all the Israelites together and saying the exact same thing, almost verbatim, as Samuel. And then, of course, you see Jesus saying almost the same thing as Samuel. And what is that call? The call is to repent, to turn from your sins, to turn from your idols, whatever you are following, whatever's guiding your hand that's not the Lord, 
whatever captures your heart that's not the Lord, and turn to him, serve him only, worship him only. Verse 4, it says, they serve the Lord. That, that can also be translated, they just worshiped the Lord only. His, their heart belonged to him only. And not only that, but if you, if you turn from this and you follow him, you're going to find deliverance. You're going to have rest. So it's going to be hard, but you're going to find rest. Of course, Jesus tells us what when he comes in his ministry. He says, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is near. It goes out throughout the country. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. Repent, believe, follow me. Those hearing him knowing it's going to cost everything if they listen and follow. But isn't it interesting what's left out of this call to follow the Lord? I'm going to poke the bear of evangelicalism 2016 just a little bit, okay? There's something very specific left out of all of these calls. And that's this. Why don't you pray this prayer with me? I'm a sinner. I believe. I want to follow you. And then after you're done, say amen. We're going to clap. You can raise a hand maybe if you don't want to confess him as Lord. Just raise a hand. And then afterwards, we're going to get on our Facebook page and we're going to say 30, 40, 50 people got saved today at our worship service. Now, for the bear bite back a little bit, understand people have been saved by this. And the prayer in and of itself, it, I, I believe there, there's so much um, good in that. But what has happened is we have made following the Lord so shallow and so many people have not seen life change because they didn't know what they were getting into. And they, they were led oftentimes with honorable intentions to simply pray a prayer that doesn't even exist in the Bible. Where does Paul instruct us to say, this is what it looks like to have someone get saved? Tell them to pray this prayer. Now, is there prayer involved when we come in faith? Of course. Is there a recognition of sin? Of course. Is there committing of our lives to love? Of course. But you'll notice that we don't do a lot of altar calls here. And it's not because we're anti-Southern Baptist. No, we love being Southern Baptist. It's because I personally have led a whole bunch of people through those prayers and seen absolutely nothing change and wondered to myself this. Either God is not very powerful or they didn't really get saved. Or maybe I led them astray a bit. You see, if you actually follow the Lord, you're going to do it past Sunday afternoon. You're going you're to follow him Monday morning. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect and everything's great and wonderful, but you're actually going to keep following him. Again, not that people don't get saved in those prayers, but man, I think we've got to raise the call. You see, there's a juxtaposition in the way that Jesus calls us throughout all of the Gospels. On one hand, he says crazy things that seem really hard, like, unless you deny your mother and father and follow me, you can't be my disciple. That's hard. Uh, he says, unless you bear your cross, like, pick it up daily and follow me, you can't be my disciple. These are all hard things. On the flip side, though, he's saying things like, are you heavy laden? Are you weary? Come to me. My yoke is light. My burden is light. Follow me. And so it's like, on one hand, following him is crazy hard. On the other hand, he's saying it's easy. But we know there's much sacrifice in following him, but the rest is beautiful. The rest found in him is light and beautiful. So, I think to truly love somebody, when it comes to us reflecting this, I think you're going to have to call people in your discipleship to something bigger and, and, and more difficult than what many of us are currently doing. Let me ask you this. When you disciple someone, when you pour into someone, whatever that might look like, maybe you're going to Starbucks for an hour, maybe you're doing a Bible study, maybe whatever it looks like, do you talk about the hard stuff? And I'm not talking about the hard stuff in that you just hear from them and listen. But like you confront sin. You, you talk about correction. 
So many of our relationships in the church have become safe zones, uh, safe from the Lord himself. Safe to talk and to hear and to be comforted by one another, but a lack of correction, a lack of a call to repentance, a lack of calling people to follow Jesus regardless of what their circumstances are telling them. And at best in the church for many of us, a good disciple maker is a good listener and a comforting shoulder to cry on. And Jesus did not call people to that. He said, follow me. Follow me. He's told them. I got to believe Samuel calls him to something higher, not just because he's told to by God, but because he has experienced the presence of the Lord and what it's like to serve him with all of your heart. Unless you've experienced it, you're going to have a hard time ever calling someone to it. But if you've experienced it, you can't settle for less than calling people to that. Because you know how good he is. You've tasted it. And you can't give him anything less. In 2016, when tolerance is king and it reigns supreme, it's really hard to have relationships built on correction and to confront one another in a loving way. I remember when I was new in ministry and we had this pastor's gathering. There's only four or five of us because the area that we're at, there just weren't many churches. And it was basically me and three or four Pentecostal preachers. And it was every Thursday morning we'd get together for coffee and built friendships. And it was great. But you come into it thinking, man, we're going to challenge each other. It's going to be good. There's going to be growth. And then you find out within, as the months pass by that, that mostly people just want to kind of relax. And they just want to talk to each other. And just there's just kind of comfort. And we kind of complain a little bit about what's happening in the congregation and who did what and how one person's bouncing from one church to the next. And you find yourself in that mode and you're like, yeah, this isn't very fun. I don't know that this is what it's supposed to be. But there was one guy who, who I didn't know very well, but he was a young guy like myself, and he was fiery, and, and he didn't come very often because he was busy doing ministry. And, and he came one Thursday morning, and I remember thinking, okay, this is going to be good. We've got some fresh blood. Let's see what happens. And we start talking and sharing stories, and one of the guys starts opening up about some frustrations he has with someone in the church. And, and you could tell that maybe he had erred a little bit in the situation, but hey, no one wants to shake the boat. We're just listening, right? And so he gets done with his story, and the new guy says, you know what? You need to repent of your sin. And he goes on a rant about repentance and about owning his responsibility in the whole thing. And you could tell the spiritual atmosphere just changed. Everyone's like, this is awkward. Except for me, I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is the good stuff. This is, I wish I could do this day one with every relationship. This is fun. Of course, it's only fun when you're doing it to someone and not receiving it, right? But it is a two-way street. And I remember just sh seeing the shakeup in that group. Everyone was like, whoa, we kind of forgot what this looks like because it's been so long since someone actually told the pastors about correction in their own lives. And if the pastors ain't doing it, how is the congregation going to have relationships where correction is embraced and repentance is desired? We partnered with him. We ended up merging our churches later on because I thought I'd like to serve with a guy like this. And we told each other to repent a lot. <laughs> and it was, it was bittersweet. I'll say this before we move on here. Some of us are frustrated right now in, in the people that we're discipling because we see continual patterns of sin and struggles and we wonder, are the is the light ever going to go on? Are they ever going to get it? But what we're really frustrated with is not them. It's ourselves. We don't know how to disciple. And we don't know how to confront them on things because we, we're scared of confrontation and we're scared of risking uh, losing a relationship and, and we're just scared. And we talk ourselves out of it because we say, how can I confront them on something that maybe I struggle with myself? No one would ever preach the gospel <laughs> if you had to be perfect, right? But Jesus is perfect. And he gives us the authority to speak into each other's lives. It's a higher calling. Verses 5 and 6. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. 
All right. Second thing we see is that Jesus intercedes in prayer. Jesus intercedes in prayer. We see Samuel doing that, and Jesus being the better Samuel is doing that as well. Let me just say a couple things about the text. So um, it says that he gathered all Israel. Remember, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people. This isn't like, hey, go get your 20 buddies and and come hang out. No, we're talking this is going to make everyone get up and, and come here. Mizpah was about 11 miles uh, north of Jerusalem, and it was up on a hill, so Samuel more than likely is talking, and people are scattered all around him down below. And it says that they drew water and poured it out. Some commentators think that this was just a sign of the fast they were going through, being withholding, themsel- withholding food from themselves, that they were saying, hey, we're not going to drink. So we, we had the water, but we just poured it on the, on the ground. Others believe it was just a ritual of, of showing uh, their remorse and their desire to follow uh, the Lord. But we don't see um, other references to that in Scripture in the same way um, as it is here. And then it said that Samuel judged the people and that he governed the people. He governed the people that day. So let's talk about intercession here. Jesus intercedes in prayer. Isn't it crazy bold that Samuel comes out of the gate? He says, okay, I'm going to call you to something higher than what you're used to. It's going to be scary, but it's going to be good for you. Oh, by the way, gather all of these hundreds of thousands of people together, go up on this hill, and I'm going to pray for you. Talk about boldness. Like what makes Samuel such a, a wonderful prayer that like he, he's going to say, you want something awesome to happen in your life? I'll pray for you. What? We're going we're gonna to gather so that you can pray for us. But that's what he says. That's what he says. Romans 8.34 says that Jesus intercedes for us, that right now uh, he is at the right hand of the Father, and he is interceding for us. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus, because we have access to the Father because of Jesus and his death and resurrection, but we also have him bridging the gap in prayer and communication. So when we ask, it's going through Jesus to the Father. That's what Jesus is doing right now. And so if Samuel's got some powerful prayer, and we're going to see how powerful it is here in a second, what do you think Jesus' prayer life is like? If you got him praying for you, what kind of favor do you have with God? It's going to be pretty powerful. And there's not one person in here whose prayers the Lord hears without it going through Jesus Christ. Some kind of favor. And to top that off, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 5-9, through 9, Peter shares that we as the church are children of God and that we are a priesthood of believers. So as priests, we have access to be able to pray for other people to God. Doesn't mean we're Jesus, right? We're still going to Jesus. But for those who don't have access to him, non-believers, we can be interceding. And it's a powerful thing. We have priestly duties in that. But it says there in verse 5, when he, he says, I'm going to pray for you. And then they come up, and we assume between 5 and 6 that they, they're gathering and they are hearing this prayer. And then you see now the spiritual atmosphere again changing, right? So they're showing, like for 20 years, they're lamenting. And then he calls them to something higher in, in verses 3 and 4. And then he says, I'm going to pray for you. And then it takes off the spiritual atmosphere, the, the remorse, the desire to truly repent and follow the Lord is really taken off. That's what happens when we intercede for people. We see man stop working and we see God doing what only God can do. And things change quick. Why, for so many of us, and when I speak, I'm I'm preaching to myself. Why does intercession, praying for others, why in many of our discipleship relationships has that become a last resort? Like, we gather and we'll give advice and we'll counsel all day long. And at best, if we're driving over to see him, we might be praying for the, the meeting, right, for just a minute or two. But in terms of, like, really praying for them, we don't find ourselves making that the first option in many cases. 
Again, we get frustrated with those who are discipling, but I love how God has made spiritual roadblocks in our discipleship, pointing us back to the very DNA of discipleship in, our, in ourselves and, and, and God, but also making disciples has to have intercession prayer. Because every single time you are going to try to do something on your own or counsel someone or advise someone and you find your strength is this much and your limitations are this much, you have to, you get to the point where you see nothing's changing. I can't do it. And we get frustrated and feel like failures and God's just saying, no, this is the DNA of disciple making. You got to come to me. I'm I'm the one working. You want something to change, you come back to me. And so it's not failure as much as it's a beautiful reminder of who's really doing the work. So is intercession, is it manipulating God? No, I don't think. Prayer in and of itself is us aligning ourselves with God's will, not trying to get him to align with our will. And, and so intercession prayer in and of itself is simply us relying and trusting and depending that God's going to do what only God can do. And recognizing you can't make disciples outside of his work. He's the one who grows them. He's the one who grows them. So let me, let me say this. Some of you guys have heard this before. You guys know about refrigerator rights, right? Have you, have you heard that before? Each one of us, when we have someone over to our house, we know um, that the certain people, depending on how comfortable we are with them, they have certain rights. And so uh, there's lots of people that if they knock on your door, um, you don't necessarily want to let them in, but they've got porch rights. Like you'll talk to them as long as they're on the porch and you got the door open and you're thinking, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to let them in for nothing, but I'll talk to them. They got porch rights. Some you don't even want to have porch rights, but they leave their flyers and whatever. Anyway. Then you got some folks who have foyer rights where you'll let them in, but you don't invite them to sit down, but you'll stand at the door again inside and talk to them for a while. And then others you're even more comfortable with, and they've got living room rights. And so you'll say, hey, come sit down. Come straight in. Sit down. Let's watch TV. Let's hang out. Let's play games. This will be fun. And and so those people are comfortable with you, and you're comfortable with them, but you don't necessarily want them to see the rest of the house, right? You're like, well, let's just make sure we cram everything in the spare bedrooms, and they can use this bathroom if they need to. But they're going to hang out in the living room, and that's where we want them, okay? And, and then you got other folks who have kitchen rights. Man, you invite them in for dinner, and, and they can hang out, and, and it's wonderful. You're close with them. But then you've got those who are even closer, and they've got refrigerator rights, right? So, like, they can come in, they can open the fridge, and they can get whatever they want. And only a few people get that kind of access. Like, they got to be, be pretty close to family, if not in the family, to get that kind of access. Well, the Bible tells us that we, in Christ through faith in him, we become children of God. Essentially what God is saying is, I'm making it to where you guys were once strangers who couldn't even get in the house, to now you have refrigerator rights. I'm saying through Jesus, you can come straight through the living room, you can come straight to the fridge and you can eat, you can taste and see that I am good, and you are family. And so intercession prayer is like this, knowing that you and I, through faith in Jesus, we are children of God, we are part of the family living in the house of God. Our goal is that many people would enter into this family. Intercession prayer is like this. If you went outside and you saw a stranger who was starving to death and he was standing at the curb and you were talking to him about his starvation and what he needed, um, discipleship is him going from knowing he needs something to actually eating and, and filling up on what is good, right? Becoming part of the family. So you want him to go from out here to in the house. Like you want refrigerator rights for him. And I, I think for so many of us, we get in our discipleship, we get so tempted to hang out at the street and at the curb trying to convince the man who's starving to death that, that maybe um, he, he needs to uh, fill up on, um, you know, this or that, and, and he needs to switch patterns a little bit. And maybe if he meets uh, for just a couple more times down the street, like, maybe that'll help him. Or if he goes at least weekly to this part of the curb, like, that'll help him. And, and really, what's happening deep down is he's saying, I'm just hungry, and I don't even know if what you got inside that house is going to fill me up. And we're trying to convince him that you can go in the house, but we haven't introduced him to the owner, and he doesn't know if there's anything good in the fridge. 
And so he's standing out there uncomfortable. He sees there's probably something good, but I don't know. And intercession prayer is us recognizing, I got to go to the fridge and get him something. Because I can get him what he needs. Now, now I, can't, I, can't, I can't make him eat it, but I can introduce him to the owner. And I can bring him some food. And we would say, well, if you don't do that, if someone's starving and you don't do that, man, that's not only cruel, that's just sick. But yet so many of us in our discipleship find ourselves super heavy on the advice and counsel and light on the intercession. And what it's saying is we trust ourselves more to argue him into a full stomach at the curb than pointing him to the one who's going to fill up his belly and make him a child living in the house himself. Intercession prayer is saying, you know what? I could talk to you all day long about why you're hungry, how you got this way, and the steps you need to take. Intercession prayer is saying, I'm just going to go straight to the fridge because I have rights that you don't have. You can be part of this family, but you need to be introduced to the living well who's going to fill you up, the bread of life that's going to fill you up, and the owner of this house who's saying, come on in. Are you caught right now in your discipleship standing at the curb trying to argue their way (laughs) out of starvation? Because I think he's saying, you know what? You need to get in and take advantage of those refrigerator rights. You got rights. Take advantage of them. Verses 7 and 8. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Verses 10 and 11. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth-Kar. All right, next thing we see is that Jesus fights for us. Jesus fights for us. You see, part of the, the, the deal <laughs> in the calling is that we're going to turn from our sin and our idols and we're going to follow the Lord wholeheartedly, but there is going to be what? Deliverance. So if part of the promise is deliverance, we have to assume the enemy is going to attack. And that's what we see. It looked like it was going great spiritually for the Israelites and Samuel. Like, man, they're finally coming back. And then, boom, their faith is tested. Here comes the enemy. Y'all know what it's like when we do, we do baptisms. I tell people, you're going to get spiritually attacked. Leading up to that baptism, right after that baptism, you place your faith in the Lord. This is beautiful. This is a wonderful day. But you're going to get attacked. The enemy's always coming, but the promise is deliverance. And so if Samuel can deliver just a little bit, how much more can Jesus deliver us? How much more can Jesus deliver us? So, you see, Sam, you see Israel begging back in, in verses 7 and 8. You see them begging Samuel to continue to cry out, to continue to pray. But Samuel doesn't just pray. He goes above and beyond. He says, all right, you know what? I could just do the 9 to 5 and stay in the office and, and I could pray for you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something more. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to fight for you on a whole other level. And it's going to be costly, but it's going to be worth it. And so he does. You see, obviously, Jesus in his life, he not only comes and prays for us, like we see in John 17, but he serves us. And he goes to the cross for us. And we see 2,000 years ago on the cross, the real battle was won for us. 
And Ephesians 2 makes it clear. Paul says that we were enemies of God and now we have peace with God. And God isn't just saving us through Jesus from the punishment of our sin, but the bondage of our sin. That the enemy is going to keep on whispering in your ear, hey, <laughs> did God really say that? Did God really do that? Is Jesus really that good? But you don't have to be under the bondage of sin. A lot of believers, they, they, they experience freedom from the punishment, but they still have the bondage. And we have, through Jesus Christ, freedom from that. You can claim that. You can walk in that. But Jesus, he fights for us. And all through scripture, you see God fighting for us. Some of us, our favorite verse is in uh, uh, Exodus 14, when, when Moses, he is so scared, and they know they're going to fight some battles. And the Lord simply says, stay still. Stay still, I will fight for you. All you got to do is stay still. Like, oh, isn't that a beautiful promise? You could just proclaim that over everyone every day, and that would be beautiful. We love to know that people are fighting for us. So the fact that the scriptures tell us God is and has fought for us and won the battle for us, that, that, should, that, should, just, that should wrench our hearts. How many of y'all know soldiers, American soldiers? Maybe it's your dad, your grandpa. Don't you have some kind of pride? Like, man, I love that. Maybe you know some who, who are in the military or, or one branch of the armed forces right now. What do you love most about them being a soldier? That they fought for you, or at least they're willing to. How many of you like living, you might not think about it that much, but how many of you like just living in the city knowing that you got police and you got firefighters who got your back? In times of emergency, they're saying, hey, before it even happens, we're going to fight for you. Of course, you don't think about it until there's an emergency, right? But man, you love having them around. How we got to the place where we despise police is a whole other thing. But it's a sign of the times. How many of you have a big brother? Now, I know they can be mean sometimes. I am a big brother and I have big brothers. But you, you look back. And you think, man, I, I love having a big brother. Why? Because you knew they would fight for you. They would have your back. We love having people fight for us. What does that say about our worth that someone's saying, I'm going to put myself on the line for you? How about this? We got any dog people? I'm, not, I'm neither a cat person nor a dog person. You heard my trapping story last week, so uh, I, I wasn't. Uh, an animal guy growing up, but I, d I did have a dog, and the dog was born about the time that I was born, and we lived for the first 16, 17 years of our lives in the same house. We grew up together, and then finally uh, she died. She was an English um, Springer Spaniel, if I remember, and so she had big floppy ears, and she was kind of, she was a little gal, um, but she was gentle, and she was fun and playful. Her name was Tessa, and she was the family dog, and we just had one dog, and I, I loved that dog. Um, I remember uh, when I was younger, we had a paper route. For seven years, me and my brothers, we would deliver papers in our little town, and, and so we would go around throwing newspapers. And I, I hated it because once a month, we had to go collect. We had to go get money for the, the pay. It was $7.40 for a month of the newspaper. And, and I would have to go into people's houses. And little old ladies who didn't have anyone to talk to, they would unload like their life drama on me. And I would just sit there and listen. And say, okay, okay, okay. And I remember going into uh, one place. It was the local motel. It was a rundown, rough place. And the guy, he was a big guy. He was huge. He was just called Old Man Jack. And you know when your name's just Old Man Jack, like it's, it's not a good reputation. And he had this dog. He had this four-foot counter or three, three or four-foot counter. He had this dog that was so big that his head would be over the counter. And so you'd come in, and I would try to make it to where the little bell wouldn't ring, but it always would ring. I'd come in, and that dog would go, woo, 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 woo. And I would be like, oh, my gosh, this is so scary. And then I would just tell him from the door, like, I'm here to collect. I'm the paper guy or whatever. And he's like, come on in. And he loved the fear in my eyes. And I remember seeing that dog. I hated that dog. I knew if that dog ever got loose on me, it would tear me apart. It was a big old Great Dane. And then I remember he did just a, a few blocks, uh, actually just a few houses down the block from us. And one day, old man Jack was going out to get the mail, and he had to go past our house. And his big old dog was walking with him, and he didn't have him on a leash. And we were playing in the yard, me and my, my brothers. And I remember 
We didn't see the dog, but we heard our dog, Tessa, barking like crazy. And before you knew it, we turned around, and at the, at the top of the stairs coming down into our yard, we see our dog, Tessa. She runs up those stairs, and she attacks this dog. And they go at it. And this big old dog tears Tessa up. Like, not kill her, but probably would have kind of thing. But Tessa just kept fighting and fighting and fighting. And I remember as a little boy just watching her. She was getting tore up. She was so gentle, but on this day, she fought like crazy. And man, they took the other dog off. The other dog didn't mess with her. She did what she had to do. She protected her boys. Man, she healed up and she was good to go soon after. But I'll never forget her fighting for me that day. And we don't forget people who fight for us, do we? Some of us, we hear that dog story and we smile because like, oh man, dogs, man's best friend. What about your brothers and sisters in Christ? What about the non-believers you're pouring into? Do you have any kind of fight for them? I'm not talking about fighting against them because they're not against, they're, they're not the enemy. What, what kind of fight do you have for them? You know that's church, right? Brothers and sisters in the Lord fighting for one another, spiritual battles, proclaiming the victory we have in Christ, sacrificing for one another. That's church. That's what it means. That's what it, it looks like. But some of us, we've got to the place where we see so little fight in the church that we've got to create fight. That board meetings gone wrong. We've turned on each other in different ways because we think, man, there should be a fight, but we don't see much fight, so let's create things to fight about. And the Lord's saying, I want some people who are going to fight for one another. Because fighting should be in our blood. Fighting spiritual battles of not only prayer uh, for one another, but sacrifice. And the people that you disciple, you wish Sometimes, like I wish, that it is uh, clock in and clock out, but you know that's not the way it is. You know that fighting for one another is going to mean sometimes you have to stay up all night with them. Sometimes you're going to get weird texts and, and phone calls from them. You have to bail them out. Sometimes you might have to spend money on them. Sometimes you're going to find yourself physically exhausted by them, emotionally worn out by them. You're going to hear their stories over and over. You're going to get frustrated with them. You're going to, you're going to battle. But you're in the game. When it comes to discipleship, you've got to be all in. And some of us don't have a clear picture of how much Jesus has fought for us on the, Christ, on the cross because we haven't seen it reflected in the church very much. We don't know what it's like to fight for one another. But when Jesus came 2,000 years ago in the incarnation and said, I'm God, but I'm going to take on human flesh, he was saying, I'm all in. I'm going to fight. And how much did he fight? He fought all the way to death. But some of us in this room, we have a hard time with discipleship because we always ask questions, questions that get in the way, questions I'm not sure we should be asking, but we do. They're understandable. Things like, well, you know, I'm pouring into somebody, but they're really starting to take more than I'm willing to give. When is too far? Like, when do I back off? For some of us, that line is so early on in sacrifice, right? Like, if we even have to sacrifice it all for them, we're like, you know, maybe I should spend time pouring into someone else. Because they're kind of just filled with drama, and I just feel like maybe, maybe I'll just back away. To be all in means you're taken, your, your resources and your time and your energy. And because we as children of God don't have to worry about fighting for ourselves anymore, we can spend that energy fighting for them. Spiritual battles. Are you willing to do that? Discipleship, I think, is incomplete if the people making disciples don't have the heart to fight. Last but not least, verse 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name 
Ebenezer. So this is why we sang, Come Thou Fount, because we've all heard that song a million times and wondered, what in the world is an Ebenezer, right? If you've been in the church world for a while, you know what I'm talking about. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the word Ebenezer in Hebrew literally means stone of help. And so it was a mile marker. It was a reminder of God's deliverance for Israel and also what happens when when they turn to him. Stop fighting their own battles. He fights for them. So next time you're singing, come thou fount, now you know it's a mile marker. It's It's a reminder that God helps his people. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. Now, later on, some would say they fought a whole bunch of battles. While Samuel was judge, there was peace in the land. Okay, later on, there would be battles. But while he was judge in the years to come, there, there was um, peace in the land. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored, that's important, were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites, or the hill people. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Verse 16, And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged, or again governed, Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. Last but not least, we see that spiritual battle wounds are worth it. When we're fighting for others, spiritual battle wounds are worth it. So you see, Israel, they win this battle, God comes through, God now redeems them, restores them. They go from the battle that they thought they were going to win against the Philistines, but through Eli's sons and the, uh, their sin, God was going to let the wrath pour out on them. So they're wondering, you got to think, oh no, the Philistines are coming again, we're going to lose the ark. This is going like, to happen again, like seriously, we're going to lose the presence of God again. God says, no, that's not the way it works. You don't have to fear that. I came back to you. I'm staying with you. You don't have to fear. And it says that restoration, peace, came to every part of the land. Oh, man. I tell you what, you can question all day long, how far do you go for other people? Non-believers, believers, believers, whoever you're discipling, people who have never heard the name of Jesus, and you're just trying to move them in the direction of salvation, to those who say, I want to follow, and they're just going to be sanctified. It's all discipleship. So many times in ministry, you question, is this worth it? Is this worth it? And Samuel says, there's going to be a marker in our lives that says God will help us. It is worth it. We got all kinds of scars and wounds from following our own way. Some of, we, some of us, we, we got bills that come in the mail. We got reminders of that debt and bad decisions that we've made. Some of us never forget the way those divorce papers looked. And we thought, how did we get to the place of divorce? Some of us have emotional scars, of broken relationships, physical scars, bad decisions. We've all got scars. But do you have any scars that leave an eternal legacy? Right? Do you actually have any scars that you don't just show off to your buddy because you're kind of proud of it because you fell off your bike when you're seven? Scars that actually have an eternal legacy. Ones that people don't even know about. Like, yeah, I got up. When I got that text in the middle of the night, I got up and I drove over there and we sat. And I can't save them. I can't do much for him, but I'm going to intercede for him. I'm going to sacrifice myself. I'm going to fight spiritually for him. And I don't care whether there seems to be much hope in their life or not. I'm I'm just fighting. Years later, you find out they came to the Lord. You find out how much of a testimony that night was to him. He says, man, I was worn. how, how, How many times... Do we go above and beyond the let's just meet at Starbucks and have an hour-long talk about Jesus? Where life gets crazy messy, and when you said, I'm all in, Jesus said, I'm going to take you up on that. 
But they're going to have to really sacrifice for that. But they're going to see me through you. They're going to want me and they're going to have me. They're going to taste and see that I'm good. How, How many of those kinds of battle scars do we have? But I'll tell you what, when you see peace in the land, when you see peace in in every part of a person, when you see spiritual lights go off, when you see God doing the work that only God can do and he gives revelation to people and he convicts them and he draws their heart in and he shows them and tells them of grace and they start to embrace it and they, they start to grasp it just a little bit, I'm telling you what, there's nothing more rewarding than that. There's nothing more rewarding than seeing people with hurts and hang-ups and brokenness, find healing in the Lord. What else do we have going on that's more important than leaving that kind of eternal legacy? Knowing it's Jesus doing the work. It's his spirit doing the work. It's his word doing the work. But if he calls and says, I want you to be the vessel, are you willing to go all in? Because it is worth it. So let me finish by asking you the same question I asked you at the beginning. What are you reflecting? The way you disciple someone tells you about all you need to know about the way you view Jesus and what you've received from him. If your discipleship looks like a convenient meeting once in a while with some pats on the back and, hey, I know things are hard, but try harder, do better. That's probably the way you view Jesus in your own life. I might be wrong, but that kind of relationship doesn't bear much actual transformation. Or have you given up your life for the sake of abiding in Christ and ministering to other people, whatever that looks like, knowing I gotta go all in. It's gonna get messy, it's gonna get sloppy, but if they're gonna hang around me, I'm gonna point them to Jesus. And I'm gonna trust him like never before to do the work that only he can do. I'm gonna surrender and humble myself. And I don't know what it looks like, and it's out of my control, but I am all in. Because that kind of radical discipleship reflects someone who has received a radical, loving Jesus. That's the Jesus of the Bible. One that went all in for you. So that's what the church needs to be reflecting. What are you reflecting? Let's pray.